Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. In this episode, I talk to Joy Lawson Davis and Deb Douglas about gifted education. Specifically, we identify the underrepresented population of gifted students and the unique cultural barriers they face. Joy and Deb share their definition of what self-advocacy is and why it's a skill everyone should have, and they give helpful tips and resources for educators, parents, and advocates on how to find and nurture gifted potential. We also touch on the topics of equity, test preparation, IQ, special education, and intersectionality. This was a very personal episode for me, as you will see toward the end. I got quite emotional in this episode, both because I think this is an extremely important topic and too many kids are falling through the cracks due to our misunderstanding of human potential, but also because of my own personal experiences growing up with a learning disability. This was a really meaningful episode for me. So without further ado... I now bring you Joy Lawson Davis and Deb Douglas. Joy and Deb, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today on the Psychology Podcast. Thanks for inviting us. Glad to be here with you. So congrats. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, congrats on this new book. Uh, It seems so timely right now, even more timely, especially in light of the controversy about uh, New York education cutting. Well, they they're going to have accelerated programs, uh, but they cut their prior kind of um, pull-out programs for for young children, right? Based on the grounds that it's the inequities in gifted education. So this sets up your book just perfectly, right? You know, what, what, who are the underrepresented gifted? Who are, what is that population? Right, right. Well, um, Dev and I uh, worked very hard to ensure that we we spoke to the experts across the country uh, who who told us who these students are. We looked at the data. Of course, we're talking about Black students, Latinx students, low-income students, twice exceptional, LGBTQ populations, the rural students, uh, even highly gifted students. Uh, we don't speak specifically to them, but there is conversation there in our book. But 
Yes, there are a number of students, uh, Scott, who, despite what's happened across the country, who continue to be underrepresented in gifted programs mm. nationwide. Nationwide. Well, what what falls within the purview of that? Who who are who are some of the most underrepresented that we got out there? You know, and I think, but we know because of the data that we are referring mostly to black students, uh, Latinx students, and and poor students, students who live in poverty. Uh, we continue to not be able to identify them, provide appropriate services for these groups of students. They don't have the resources. They don't have the teachers who have the right kind of training to understand who they are. So those three populations in particular are, are ones that we, um, that we believe will be um, supported by this great book, this great project. It's so hard to be specific about the populations too, because gifted education varies so much from district to district, from state to state, across the country. What's defined as gifted education varies greatly. Who get who is chosen for gifted education programs varies. The identification process varies so much. So I know we really try to collect data and we really try to say these people are underrepresented or or these people deserve their needs to be met. But we as a country don't have a good way of analyzing whose needs are being met. We can look at a large city population like New York and say, well, we know who's missing from this. You've got X population of black students in your district and you have a fraction of that percentage in your gifted programs. We can look at that, but it's really a more invasive, pervasive problem across the country. And especially like Joy was saying in rural areas and areas of um, low socioeconomic where there's there are no programs, there is no access. There is nothing for kids to be enrolled in. Yeah, so this I think actually puts you two in a quite unique situation because a lot of people in this debate want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, you know. Uh, they they will say, well, because um, African Americans are underrepresented in gifted education, we should cut gifted education. But you two are taking a, a kind of a unique position, maybe not within the, obviously not within the field of gifted education, because obviously within the field of gifted education, they believe in gifted education, but broadly in society, right? You know, it's kind of hard for people to wrap their heads around the fact that we can have equity and excellence at the same time, Absolutely. you know, and, yes. and you, you two are saying you can. Absolutely. So <laughs> Absolutely. go you two. Absolutely. <laughs> go you two. But that's a kind of a unique position. Yeah. Yes, we are. We are. We are all about this. You know, we are all about uh, Scott trying to demonstrate that we can have equity and excellence at the same time. We can because there are gifted children in all communities. We and when we, as you say, throw the baby out with the bathwater, what we're doing is uh, restricting these students' access to just the kinds of programs they need. And it's really uh, unfair. It also suggests, and this is the piece that, that really cuts at me a lot, it also suggests that when we say we, ha we can't have gifted programs and have equity, it suggests that those students can't be gifted. But that's not true. We know better. Right. We, we know so much better by now that we have found these children everywhere. They demonstrate how creative, how bright they are, how scientific they are. They have they've shown it to us everywhere. And so we can't we can't say to anyone that in order for us to achieve equity, we have to we have to cut out these programs. 
we know, Scott, you and I and Dad, we all know that those children whose parents have means will always find a way to get resources for their kids. They will always find a way. Those parents who are the strongest advocates, the ones who can go out and buy whatever they want, but these children don't have those same kinds of means. They need advocates to say, we're gifted too. We're gifted too. And we need to show and demonstrate that. And I think our book, you know, like you say, uh, it puts us, you know, out there to say that this can be, this can work. We can do this, but we're going to do it in a different way. Deb is a, Deb is a self-advocacy genius, uh, Scott. I want to tell you, I want to say this before she says another word. When I came upon her work a few years ago and I read what she was proposing as a, as a way to, to get beyond barriers, I thought about it twice and I felt like, mm, it's not fair for kids to have to advocate for themselves. It's just not fair. And then I thought a second time about it and I said, but you know what? If we listen to the children, the very persons whose lives we expect to change, then maybe we can do something about this equity issue. Maybe we can do something about this. And so I, I dug in and I listened to this woman. I listened to her talk about the changes that she's seen come about through her advocacy model. And I, I think we have a, you know, we have something here that we first of all, we know that no one else has designed it in this way. But we definitely have something here, I think, that can help us a great deal in gifted education. Wow. Thanks, Joy. Deb, <laughs> Deb do you, what do you want to say to that? <laughs> well, and it's true. Joy and I, when we found each other. I, I needed a way to look beyond the traditional gifted kids that I was serving who also needed to self-advocate. Hmm. But I didn't have the expertise in other populations. And when Joy and I met... She just provided so many answers to me and, and so many new questions to look at. And yet, as we began to put our projects together, we knew there were other populations that we didn't have um, the depth of understanding of ourselves. And that's why we brought together so many contributors to our book. I do want to say one thing, um, just going back to what Joy said a minute ago about um, affluent families will always find a way to get the resources their kids need. I often check on Amazon for what are the top 50 books in gifted education? And every time I look, the majority of the top 10 are test preparation, ability test preparation, because parents who want to get their kids into gifted programs have the means, the resources or whatever to buy these things to help their kids prepare for it. And so that's why one of the major things we need to do is change our identification processes and look at, at kids who present gifted characteristics in non-traditional ways. So we can get back to that in a little while, too. But that's that's an important reason why we shouldn't dump gifted and talented programming, why we need to broaden the recognition of what giftedness is. And our society in general has a very stereotypical vision of what giftedness is. It's those high achieving, high test scoring, high grade achieving, successful students who do well in school and are college bound from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So how do we erase that stereotype and how do we help everyone see the giftedness in the, the students beyond that stereotype? Uh, do you want me to go on about self-advocacy? <laughs> well, I have some, I still have some questions from some things you just Great. said. Good. So first mm -hmm. of all, it's been uh, my reading of the literature that test preparation, you really can't, you can't like boost your 
IQ score, for instance, substantially through test yeah. preparation. IQ is not that malleable. You know, IQ does is measuring some important set of cognitive skills that are, you know, abstract reasoning and things that, you know, a parent can't just pay, you know, money for their um, child to just walk in and get a perfect IQ test score. So that's been part of my reading. Well, it does help to prepare students. It does help to prepare students for testing and what kind of questions they'll be having and what order things might come in or or what, um, especially with young children, to pre- prepare them for the types of things they will be experiencing in the testing situation. And it's also true that in some schools, that initial testing is not a full uh, IQ test, achievement test, I mean, ability test score. It might be something like the, the Kaufman Brief Intelligence Test, or it might mm, be, you know, there are a very early screeners that children in in very early grades or even in kindergarten, if they haven't uh, been exposed to them, will be might be confused by them. Mm. So it, I, I agree see. with you. That you we can't pay to have our kids have higher IQs, but right. um, and obviously certain um, we know the importance of early childhood and preschool education and early experiences that allow kids to demonstrate their gifts earlier. And so if we do screening using only ability test and achievement tests at a very mm-hmm. early age, we eliminate a lot of people right from the get-go. It doesn't even give them a chance. Yeah, yeah. There's Because not everyone is out of the gate in the same opportunities, same educational enrichment, same, yeah. So, no, mm-hmm. that point is very well taken. And then the second thing um, I wanted to bring up about what you just said is expanding the notions of giftedness beyond just uh, achievement test scores and IQ. I'd love to get some of your thoughts on what uh, what other things would you want to – uh, include in the definition of giftedness because I don't think that you're saying that every child's gifted in their own way, right? Are you saying that? Correct. No. No, because because some people say that, no. but I roll my eyes when people say that. Quite frankly, because <laughs> no, not everybody's no. gifted. <laughs> Sorry, and I roll my eyes as well. Yes, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't believe in that, and I, and you know, we want to have, we want to make that clear because then we're in another camp altogether, and we're, we're, we're fighting yeah. another yeah. battle that. You know, yeah. that I really don't want to spend time fighting. But yeah. but we do believe that there are other ways that students can demonstrate their their giftedness. Uh, yeah. in, in many cultures, students who are perhaps more uh, more verbal, more orally verbal, they can talk to you and tell you things that you can't pick up on any ability or achievement test. And so that when schools uh, take the time to uh, to set up interviews with students or sometimes just observe students, in instruction, they can see students responding to one another. And, you know, if they can measure that response over time, then perhaps they'll be able to pick up some students that they would not have necessarily seen, you know, uh, you know, just by saying, okay, today we're going to do this, this big test. We're going to test everybody. Even universal screening or, you know, local screening, local norming may not pick up these students. And so we have to provide other ways that we um, that we begin to look for uh, gifted traits. So if teachers understand the traits, number one, then they'll be able to see those traits, but they won't see them if they don't understand them. If they don't understand that there's a kid that comes, you know, out of a, out of a very, say, a very poor community, but this kid has a vocabulary that... Um, that will rival any child coming from anywhere because they pick up on language. You know, they do it so quickly, so easily 
And um, they can tell you those things if you um, if you take the time to listen. So I think sometimes we just have to have a better sense about what giftedness looks like in, in children across population groups. And then, you know, what can we do differently? You know, how can we listen to these children? How can we set up instruction that, you know, we can they can demonstrate what their gifts are? Uh, but it is, it's time consuming. It, um, it takes money perhaps, but I think we do a lot of students a great injustice when we don't train teachers. And then teachers come in with a perception that, they, if those kids are not like the kind of kids that, that Deb spoke about a moment ago, then then they're not gifted, you know. So we have to change our yeah. understanding of what gifted traits are yeah. and, you know, how they're manifested in any classroom setting with any group of students. So teachers have to be a part of that. But we also, uh, Scott, have to engage parents. You know, we, mm-hmm. we both work with parent groups all the time and, and parents can tell you some very unique things about these kiddos that mirror the research. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've talked to parents who told me about the kinds of things their child did when they were toddler, you know, uh, that was so different from the other children, perhaps in the family or other children in the community. And again, we just have to expect that any parent almost can say, there's some things about my kid that makes them different. But we want to be able to give parents a chance to tell us, you know, those kinds of things as well. So, yes, there are other ways. We just have to invest a little more time and a little more energy and sensitivity and sensitivity, you know, into looking for those kinds of traits uh, across population groups. And no, not all children are gifted. No, not all children are gifted. Um, that's not what we're saying. I'm not what I'm ever saying. I am suggesting, though, that there are children almost in any community that can demonstrate giftedness. And not every child is gifted at, at a single moment in time. It is possible to be ungifted, like I was as a kid, and to become gifted. Is that possible? Am I gifted now that I got a Yale PhD? Does that count? <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> I would absolutely say so. And I think. Or am I just like a. Or am I just faking it? Am I faking it? <laughs> well, we tend to think of giftedness as being connected with the educational system, right? I've right. had students say to me, do you think my mom was gifted? She was in a gifted program when she was in school. Do you think she used to be gifted? It's like if a gifted individual is a gifted individual and an educational setting provides more struggles, more complications sometimes in the outside world. But mm-hmm. giftedness does evolve. Do you know the work of um, Francois Gagne? And course, and how yeah. gift, yeah, how they grow, yeah, through all of these, this pro- process that it goes through growing into talents and all of the effects that we bring to that process, but all of the environmental effects that come in that process. So, of course, giftedness arises at various times and is nurtured and is better understood at various times. But I, I also must say, put on record, I do not believe that everyone is gifted. I believe that everyone can have gifts of various kinds, their own personal strengths. But if, if you think in terms of, let's on the grade level, for instance, in the, in the educational setting, a third grade class, the vast majority of kids are going to have third grade abilities. They're going to have third grade social and emotional abilities. And then there are going to be these outliers these kids in whatever direction have less than third grade 
strengths and have more than third grade strengths. And gifted kids who have more than third grade strengths vary as much from each other (laughs) as they do from the grade level kids and the below level grade level kids. Fortunately, in our society, we have tons of help in the educational setting for those kids who struggle below third grade abilities, their great social emotional awareness, that sort of thing. We don't have a lot of it in place nationally for those kids who are above. And we don't have a lot in place to help teachers understand. In fact, most teachers breathe a sigh of relief if they've got some kids who are above their grade level because that means they don't have to (laughs) struggle so much with those kids. But Mm. often that leaves those kids without an appropriate challenge or enriching. And without an appropriate challenge, our brightest kids won't develop those kind of skills they need to struggle to achieve something that's difficult. They don't develop, we like to call it, you know, the grit and the resilience and that sort of thing. Mm. So that's why it's vastly important for us to identify those kids who have needs beyond where they are in the school setting and figure out how to provide those those challenges that will allow them to grow. Because every kid needs to grow in school. That's what they're there. Every kid deserves to learn something new every day. And even those kids who already know what we're about to teach. There are ways that we can help them expand beyond that. Yeah, this this stuff is really tricky. <laughs> um, you know, the NEGC defines giftedness as involving either potential or high achievement. So it can come from either path. How do you, but, but that's so tricky in practice, especially with the kind of populations you're interested in, because a lot of them are not high achieving. So how are you finding their potential when they're focusing just on getting like food on the table, you know, or focusing on, you know, they have so many other concerns that are in their head, uh, you know, especially if they're in very uh, dangerous, violent environments, right, with gangs and things like that. You know, it's how you find their potential. I mean, kudos to you for caring and to even say that we should, that look, there are those with gifted potential, but, but how do you find it at such a young age when, especially in those conditions, it's particularly hard, right? Well, Scott, that that's again, you know, we you know, we can't take away from the importance of of teacher training, of teacher mm. training. From the very, you know, day that a student walks into a school, there has to be there have to be teachers in that school, in that environment, who understand those kinds of things that are going on in their lives, like you just spoke about, that that they are having to navigate as as we say, uh multiple worlds. And we do speak about that, you know, in, in our book. We we talk about intersectionality, for example, using that same the same term, the same, you know, construct that Kimberly Crenshaw came up with when she was a law student and she and she first wrote about race and gender and the law and how all three of those uh, were impactful, you know, to her as a as a young woman studying studying the law, young black woman studying the law. And so, you know, we've adopted that theme for looking at these children as well, because we're not just talking about a mind of someone with a with cognitive strengths. We're talking about someone who has a family, and within that family, they they navigate through that world. They also have a community, a neighborhood. They have to navigate that world. There's also the perception that they have to live through. What people perceive of them just because they happen to be from a difficult neighborhood. 
people happen to be a child of color or happen to be a student who speaks a second language or even a third language, you know? So we have language, we have family, we have community, we have their ability. You know, these are multiple worlds that these students have to navigate every day. And so we believe that it's critically important for classroom teachers, Scott, not just to know about I mentioned it earlier, not just to know about what gifted traits are, but to know about these children as whole people, you know, to understand, you know, who they are and what it is they live through. You know, this this is a this is a whole person coming into you every day. And unless you can uh, understand those multiple worlds at any given time that this child is focusing on, you know, you know, helping a family put food on the table or being the uh, the child who comes home early in the afternoon to take care of his or her siblings, you know, or being the the black male student who, it, who knows he's bright, who knows he's different than some other students are, but he knows when he hits the streets, he's being perceived as a threat to society. So these kids know, know these kinds of things uh, about, themselves. They know it early. They know early on who they are and what others mm. think about them. And they carry all this with them every day. So the piece around teacher training can't be any more critical than we can. I mean, how many times we can say it, but this is a part of what we're, you know, we're attempting to do in this in this book as well, making sure that teachers understand as much as possible about each of these populations and then about, you know, the um the, the ways that their worlds intersect. That that piece of it is um, is important. And, you know, we, we're working on that and we're, we're seeing more and more culturally responsive coursework come up. We're seeing more and more people talk about about how students' social, emotional needs uh, impact their, their mm-hmm. cognitive needs. But, you know, we, we have to make sure that the people that these students see every day for seven, eight hours a day you know, have a clear, uh, as clear as possible understanding uh, of who they are, Mm. of who they are. I think often our educational system focuses on disabilities of students before they face on, before they focus on their abilities. It happened for so long with twice exceptional children um, Mm. that districts were really quick to help them with whatever limitations they had. But Mm. often that was in place of acceleration or enrichment. I had a teacher tell me once, we, he, this particular child had so many times pulled out of the classroom for speech work and for um, dysgraphia, dyslexia and, and all sorts of things that they were dealing with. And I said, he really should be in our junior grade books discussion group because he has such a great interest in literature. And they said, well, you know, he probably can't read all the literature. And I said, well, we could read it to him. We, but, but the focus was on helping him get to the middle as opposed to helping him expand. And I I think the same thing happens frequently with other underrepresented gifted kids. I do workshops for kids on self-advocacy, gifted kids. Mm -hmm. And I approached two large urban districts and volunteered, because I wanted to work with more urban kids, volunteered to do workshops. And the response in both was simply, we have so many other concerns. Our gifted kids have so many other concerns. We don't have time for this now. We have to deal with it. And my... My response is, so those kids who are ready to self-advocate and need to self-advocate right now will not develop those skills or be introduced to the concept because not everybody's ready for it now or because there are so many other issues that are first. And I think what Joy and I fell on was 
maybe self-advocacy comes first. Maybe we say if you if people aren't meeting your needs, if your district, if your school, if your teachers, if your parents aren't helping you find the challenges that make school interesting for you, then how do you find your voice and ask for what it is you need and what you want and even to understand what it is you need and want? So what is self-advocacy? <laughs> In its simplest terms, it's... Um, it's asking for what you want and need, isn't it? My first um, definition You're is the expert. Lauren. <laughs> well, I mean, I think all of us think like, well, advocacy is, um, is a skill everybody should have. And it's, it's great to speak up for what you want and need, whether it's in school or at the college level or in relationships or in the workplace, in, in marriages and families. Um, but it's, it's critical for gifted kids in an educational system that doesn't recognize their outlier status and believes that they're okay just where they are. And especially critical, as Joy and I have determined, for those underrepresented gifted kids to, to find a process. Well, can I read the definition Joy and I came up with? Yeah, I'd love that. This is, love that. This yeah. is more, more specific to our underrepresented kids. And we worked really hard and long on this to figure out what we wanted to say. We feel that self-advocacy... It's a dynamic process. That's one of the key things, right? It's not a one and done. It's a dynamic process that enables high potential students, not high achieving, high potential students, to claim their right to an education that addresses their unique intellectual and academic, psychosocial and cultural needs, cultural needs, without endangering their self-esteem or that of others. And we love that last phrase too, because um, we know that inappropriate ways to self-advocate don't end in the desired effects, right? Um, kids saying, this is boring, I hate this, we study this every year, why do we have to do this again, I don't like this, doesn't get them anywhere. So, and yet, and also, we don't want kids to ask in a way in which they get shot down and their self-esteem is injured in that way too. So the second part of our definition is it's a compilation of culturally responsive, so important, and inclusive empowerment strategies. Mm. What are those strategies that open opportunities for these students for to have positive academic and life outcomes? And we added that these outcomes are previously have been um, precluded for some students due to stereotyping, systemic biases, and limited access to resources. Oh, wait, I want to write that down. Those are, that's key. That's key. Stereotyping. It is. Limit, limited resources and what? Limited opportunities. Stereotyping systemic biases and limited access to resources. Wow. Well, I have a question. You know, you talk about cultural differences or considerations. To what extent could certain cultural differences in appreciation for academic success cause some of these differences. You know, for instance, in the Asian community, there's a very high proportion in gifted education programs. I mean, they are scoring better on the test. African-Americans are not scoring as well on the test. There's like a fifth, there's still like a standard deviation difference on IQ tests. Um, so they're not actually getting the scores. So is part of the reason like cultural differences at all? Like I know she didn't mention that. Like in the African American community, community, do they do they put as much emphasis on young children? And uh, for instance, if you're like a really nerdy black kid, like are you going to be more prone to bullying than if you're a really nerdy Asian kid within the Asian community? Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, um, wow, Scott, that's a that's a big question, and we have um, answers that could take us another eight hours responding to. But but uh, I want to I want to give two examples of of a black kid, for example, um, a black kid who uh, is, and this is a, a, a true story. I just someone using names, but a black kid who is a, a very high achiever, identified as gifted young. He's attending a specialized high school. Part, half day, the other half day, he's in his um, his back in his home high school. He's also star athlete. So this kid is um, on the uh, bus riding to the specialized school for half day. Is the only black kid on the bus. The others are white and Asian right. students. There are no black females. He's the only black kid on the bus. He was attending the school for his tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade year. So he's, he's going for a, a, a good time to that particular school. He right. was repeatedly bullied on the bus by yeah. his uh, white and Asian peers and said, to, and by calling, by saying that he was too black to be gifted. See, that's fucked up. Too black <laughs> to be gifted. <laughs> wow. It is fucked up. Pardon me. You're right. Yeah. So this is There's what no was said to him in the, after, in the morning going, going to this high level, you know, science, technology, science program. In the afternoons, on the other hand, he was going, um, he was going to uh, practice athletic practice with his predominantly black peers, some that he knew from the community he grew up with and all that. And they would say to him that he was, uh, he wasn't black enough. He was acting white. Yeah. He's talked yeah. like a white boy. It's like he can't win. He was win. hanging with the white boys. Yeah. You can't, exactly. you can't win. So what, what pulled this kid out? What pulled this kid out was the support from home. He did have a mom who went to a gifted program. Um, he, he, his mother understood uh, on a very personal level what that kind of taunting could do to a person's soul. And uh, between the mother and a very large extended family, the support they gave him enabled this kid to, uh, to get through the high school experience and get into college and get out in three years. Interestingly, you know, enough, this kid had had his choice of attending pretty much any predominantly white university um, on the East Coast because his scores were high. He was performing, you know, he was a big Besides, he was he was an athlete, too, of course. So but he chose to go to a small HBCU, go to a small HBCU. So he what does nature? What is as that? He says uh, HBCU, historically black college and university. Oh, I see. We have I a see. number of them across the oh, nation, and the majority of the students that attend HBCUs are black students. As a matter of fact, I worked at one for about five years, not too long ago. But anyway, his experience there, he said, enabled him to uh, to be himself, to be himself. So that what he found at the HBCU that maybe he didn't have in his own school, he found other scholarly black students that he could walk with on campus, talk with. They didn't tease him. They didn't taunt him. And it was okay to be smart. It was okay and cool to be smart with this particular group of kids and then also do all the other kinds of things he wanted to do in his life. So now he felt like he was whole. But it, it took him that experience to get beyond the hate and the aggravation and the bullying, the taunting that he was going through um, in his um, in his high school, during those three years of high school. Um, 
again, had it not been, you know, for that support of that family, the strong mother, the father, the, the grandmother, it was a huge family. And, um, uh, they, they, they circled around him. They circled around him and gave him the support that he needed. And he was able to pull out because not every kid can pull out. Not every kid can pull out. I've read stories. I know students. Um, not everybody survives in, in this in this world that we live in where um, we are told so often you're too black to be gifted or you're not black enough. You're not black enough. Um, but then there's these other kids. I'm going to tell you about three more kids and I'm going to get this back to Deb. I sat in on uh, a, um, I guess it was an advisory meeting with, with uh, three students not too long ago. All three of the students had a chance to go to one of these same kinds of schools and they decided they didn't want to. They pulled out. Mm. They all three pulled out pretty much at the same time, which was very unfortunate because the school was, you know, prestigious, you know, high performing. You get that on your resume. You can pretty much go wherever you want to go. Well, each of the girls came in and uh, told a group of us adults why they wanted out of the school. But there was one kid, and this Deb, you would, you would, if I could have taped it, I would have said, "Oh my God!" The whole time I said, "Deb Douglas needs to hear this girl. <laughs> Deb needs to hear this girl." <laughs> there was one kid who, who at, I guess they were tenth grade. I have to say ninth or tenth grade. Um, one of them was very, very mature though. But she spoke as if she had written our book on on uh, on self empowerment, on self advocacy. She said to us that there were people in her school who um, looked down upon them, stereotyped them, stereotyped them, and said things to them that made them feel as if they were less than the other students and didn't have a sense about what it meant to be a Black female in that kind of an environment. So this kid says to this group of adults, by now it should be normalized that classroom teachers understand what it means to be black and gifted. It should be normalized that classroom teachers, when she said normalized, I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, I was cool though, Deb. I didn't make any faces or she was clear that she felt as if the teachers in that environment did not understand what they were going through when they felt as if they were alone, they didn't belong, uh, they were being called out because of the particular school districts they came from. They were being called out because of their ethnicity, being called out because of their gender. And she felt as if the teachers, she said by now, and this is by now, she's mean, she means in, in this century that they should be, it should be normalized that teachers would, would know better, would know better. So there are these kids out there, um, you know, Scott, who, who, who have this self-advocacy thing down pat already, because some of them are just a little more outspoken than others, perhaps a little wiser. Uh, but then there's other kids who probably are in the same situation who need the skill set that we promote in this book. They need that skill set. They need educators to understand how to teach them how to speak up for what they need and what they want and what's going to help propel them forward. But you have to know these kids in order to do that. And that's why I think it's really important that we call on these experts in these particular areas to say, these are the skills that teachers need to have if you're going to work with yeah. a twice exceptional 
gifted kid for self-advocacy. If you're going to work with LGBTQ student, if you're going to work with black students, ELL students, if rural, you know, these are the skills you need to have. They can all come to the same end. They can all be good, better at self-advocacy, but you need to be able, you need to know these kids in order to in order to move them, propel them forward. So there's a great need out there, Scott. I'm glad you asked that question. It's there's Thank you. a huge need out there, uh, you know, for educators to, to better understand and as this kid said <laughs> so eloquently <laughs> to normalize this kind of behavior that, yes. that teaches no better. Dad, go normalize ahead. black if they should know better by now. <laughs> hashtag yes, normalize it. Ha- yes, hashtag normalize it. Yeah. And get rid of uh, these situations where kids are being said you're too this and you're t- or you're not enough of that, you know. Yeah. You're too this or you're not enough of that. It's 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 just wrong. It's wrong, but it happens every day. So we're going to try to stop some of that. Well, it's wrong we're that you used try. more polite language than I used. <laughs> you said it's wrong. I said that's more polite. <laughs> How about you're, more polite. you're more polite than me. <laughs> oh, boy, that's fucked up. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm trying. Um, <laughs> you should be. No, no you're, you're very uh, classy. You're a very classy woman, Joy. Okay, so... <sighs> I, well, let's keep this line of thought going. We're talking about the barriers to self-advocacy, you know, we you just we you just mentioned uh, we just talked about some cultural, but you, you just mentioned some others to me, Deb. You know, you said um, limited opportunities, systemic biases, limited access to resources. Do you want to kind of riff on that and uh, expand on that at all? Well, a little bit more, and also about the cultural barriers. Joy and I didn't sure. understand the specific um, barriers that different populations might experience. And that's why we turn to um, experts in the field of gifted education, you know, who have done done the research themselves, but also grew up as members of that, those special populations and had personal experiences and understood from many perspectives what kids might be going through. And one of the interesting things we learned, for instance, because I learned so much from what our contributors added, is that if you think, for instance, about... Um, uh, Latinx, or as she liked to call them, Hispanic families. The cultural setting is you you do with what, what the school says you should do. And you family is important, so you certainly wouldn't want to send your kids to a school somewhere else that's not your community school. There are those some of those beliefs. And so I, I won't go into all the various cultural differences, but those are some of the barriers to kids getting the education they need. And so in cases like that, what we found is how can we help the students who have begun to understand themselves and their gifts and their talents and what that means for their education, how can we help them work with their families to better understand? How can we communicate better with the families about, yeah. about their child's needs and how we hope to address them? And how do we, how do we help that child take the lead in in that conversation between the school and their families. So that's that's one of the barriers, but it's also one of the ways of addressing those barriers, those cultural barriers. Good, good. So well, what other resources, what other resources do educators need? You know, what else is valuable here to uh, for people who, who uh, are listening to this and uh, want something quick they can institute in their school? Number one, I think um, when we recognize children with gifts and talents, we need to help them learn how to self-advocate. And that's, as we said, is a dynamic process. 
Yeah. Um, how do we how do we help them mm-hmm. assess and reflect on themselves as learners and what their strengths are and accept the fact that they may not be brilliant across the board. They may have some struggles and they may have to work at some things. Their interests, their their preferences, their intellectual ability, their academic strengths, all those things. And once they recognize those, how do we help them understand that they have a right to something different? Because that's even what our federal definition of giftedness mm-hmm. says, that these are um, students who are potential and in many different ways and need, may need something beyond the regular mm-hmm. classroom. And so they have a right to that. And we want to provide them with that. We're just not always aware or able to do that. So when when they aren't getting what they feel they need to be challenged, appropriately challenged, they have a responsibility to to work with us to do that. I think gifted kids often think we can read their minds and we know when things aren't going right, but nobody knows better than they do when they're at school every day, walking the halls, sitting in classes, interacting with their teachers and their peers. No one knows better than they if they are getting the education that they know they want and need. Mm -hmm. And that can change from day to day, from teacher to teacher, semester to semester, subject to subject. They have to, they have to be able to feel they have a responsibility to come to us and say, either this is, this is okay right now. I'm happy not having the challenge I need, or this isn't going right for me. I need some help in changing this. They need to know the other part of that dynamic process is they need to know what options exist or could exist. Hmm. And they need to know who the adults are around them, the advocates who can help them um, make those changes. And, and once they have those, those kind of um, that information and those insights and those, those strategies, then they feel empowered to take charge of their own education, to make it be what they want it to be. And as I've said, sometimes that may be to say to us, no, not right now, thank you. I, I don't want a challenge in that area. I'm quite happy with this, but I, but I want a challenge here. But that assumes that we as educators have built a relationship with them so that we, and we can follow them through or we can help educators next year follow them through. And when the time is right for them to pick something more challenging or to design something more enriching or whatever it is their goal is, where they're listening to them and empowering them to to make their own decisions. Mm, beautiful. And, you know, obviously, uh, self-advocacy is important for any child of any race, of any background who is overlooked in an education system. It could be mm-hmm. someone with uh, neurodiversity, mm-hmm. someone uh, with autism that's um, their gifts are not being recognized. It could be, you know, so many different, so many different things. I'm obviously, I'm very, very passionate about what you all are doing. And it's, I've been trying to stay as impartial as possible, but I must also say that this is also very personal. You know, as a kid, uh, self-advocacy was the only thing that uh, made anyone pay attention to me and my uh, potential, mm-hmm. you know, to even be mm-hmm. college-bound. And uh, when I went around, you know, when my book on Gifted came out, I went around to special ed schools talking about my story. And self-advocacy was the one thing that I told the kids that they should have. So I was mm-hmm. so delighted to read your book. It was so emotionally resonant with me. But I've been trying to stay very impartial, but it's very hard for me to not be emotional. Um, when it comes to this topic, and I very rarely get emotional in this podcast. So, how did you develop that skill? Um, let me just collect myself for a moment. <laughs> I think I um, d- 
developed that. See, I had something within me that I think I got genetically from my mother, and that's called grit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. I do. My mom is a very strong-willed woman. It drove me crazy growing up because she was very overprotective of me. But mm-hmm. but I think I I recognize similar characteristics. I there was something within me. Mm-hmm. You know, people, a lot of people keep asking me why did I fight my way out of special ed and the, the other kids in the special ed room didn't. You know, why me? Why? And I just think there was something within me where I I, I saw an injustice. Mm-hmm. And I also saw an injustice mm-hmm. with the other kids in the classroom, which is why I, I when I was a very young exactly. age, I, I said, I'm going to grow up someday and change the system. You know, it was just, it's a perceived mm-hmm. injustice that just, um, again, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, I was like, this is fucked up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, Scott, um, and I, you know, I read your book as well. And, uh, and I could see so many people that I knew in that book, in that story, you know, but like I said about that girl in that meeting, um, she was just so different than the others that nobody had actually coached her into speaking up. She just spoke up and she, you know, two minutes into the meeting, it felt as if she was another adult at the table because she was just clearly, you know, aggravated about the situation, but she, but graceful, but, and also um, the language that she used made it clear that she knew exactly what was needed to change the conditions. And uh, again, she was not just speaking, like you said, she wasn't just speaking for herself. She was speaking for every other kid that came along behind her who may have had to have the same kind of an experience. And they're just those people on the earth. And we're so grateful for the Scott Barry Kaufman's <laughs> Wow. You know, on the earth, and so grateful for this young lady and and uh, and others who who will model that kind of self advocacy. But for those who don't, who don't have the skill set and can't model it, we need we need people like you, like this girl, like some of the others educators, that we come across. We need them to speak up, right? All advocates, and we need this 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 whole group of stakeholders to be a part of this process. Mm-hmm. Teachers, counselors. Um, administrators. We we need everybody who ha- who is anybody in the system and even outside of the system to be a part of this process and and uh, and enable and allow these kids to speak up. First of all, some of us and um and I and I I say us because I was one of those kids. I I was a spokesperson for the whole world growing up. You know, I haven't changed a whole mm-hmm. lot. I guess <laughs> over the <laughs> years. Like but, you, now. you know, I was. <laughs> Yeah, I was a student council person. I was the one who led the march out of the school. I was the one who went to the board meetings at 15. And, you know, I was that, you know, I'm, I was that one. And uh, and I encouraged, I hope I did, I encouraged others who came and whispered in my ear who were afraid to say anything out loud, you know. But, you know, we, we need to build a world, build a world like this. where And this is why I think uh, this project is so important, Deb. Um, I think we need to build a world where where all of these kids are are self-empowered, where all of them understand what advocacy is. And they all, you know, feel confident that they have the skills they need and that there are other people, you know, who have gone before that have done this and it was it it worked. You know, in our book, uh, Scott, uh, before we close out, we do have a chapter uh, by students, a group of students that we met in um, in Florida. And those kids uh, blew me away. They literally blew me away when I went to their conference. They had a symposium that they planned and invited me in as a keynote 
speaker and I spoke for a few minutes and then sat down and listened to them for the next 45 minutes. And as I listened to them, my face was just awash with tears. I was so taken, you know, by their strength, by their willingness to tell their stories, even personal stories in front of a whole crowd of people and why it was important for them to have a chance to tell their story because they wanted to pave the way for other kids coming behind them to make it better. And so um, if we give kids this kind of, we build a culture, I would say, where they have these opportunities and they and they can speak out and speak up. I think we can change things. And this is what this is why I got hooked up with Deb Douglas. I have to say it again. I got hooked up with Deb because I saw an opportunity here for us to take a different look at this equity issues and how can we really make some some significant changes that are sustainable. We can come through student voice and do it. We can go through student agency and do it. We've been we failed at it miserably in other ways. And I, you know, I'm not gonna use the word you use, Scott, but that's the way I feel sometimes about this equity work, you know. We failed yeah, yeah, yeah. at it. It's just really, you know, it's yeah. really, and and we and we're still fighting. We're still fighting. But this this way is different. This way we come at it from a different angle. And um, maybe people will listen now because the kids are gonna speak up, they're gonna tell it. The same things we've been saying, but it's going to come from their voices, from their hearts. And I think that's really, really important for us to listen to them. Thanks a lot, Scott. We appreciate you so oh, much. I appreciate you guys as well so, so much. I'm going to end here with a poem by Langston Hughes called Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar or like a syrupy sweet. Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? Well, look, thank you so much for the incredible work you're doing to not defer uh, dreams. You know, it's uh, it's really uh, it's so important, and, uh, um, and especially now with uh, gift education as a field under attack, you know. So anyway, thank you so much, and uh, I'm, I'm at a loss for words here. <laughs> Thank you for this chance to share our passion. We can't change the system, but the kids can change the system. And that's why we want to empower them. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. 